like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works uh, by Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I'll be examining uh, a very interesting story about texts and about knowledge and about permanency and about how we respond to uh, a liquid world um, and kind of a striving for some consistency and, and rigidity through texts. And this story is called uh, Not By Its Cover. Now, Not By Its Cover was originally published in famous science fiction in the summer of 1968. Um, so, yeah, it's, we're really getting to the end of Dick's career of writing short stories. There's not that many left before we get to the, the sporadic years of, this, of the 70s and 80s when he only wrote a handful of, of short stories. Um, but, yeah, summer of 68, an important summer in American history, of course. Uh, I don't think... Dick is particularly connected to that in, in any of the works he publishes in 68, but it's, it's, it's in the context of, of the story. You can find this uh, story in the fifth volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick. Uh, you know, the Eye of the Sibyl and Other Classic Stories is the title I have for that anthology, but I, it has been published under other, other different titles. So um, that's where you can find it. And as always, let's just jump into talking about what's in the story, the, the plot and the, sto- the story itself, and then we'll, we'll get into some analysis. Uh, it's a rather short story. It's only, I think, six pages, so it won't take very long to, to talk about. So um, our main character here is Barney Masters, and he's the president of Obelisk Books. And they have gotten word of errors in a new edition of Lucretius's De Rerum Natura. This is a, actually a book, classic book from, from you know, ancient writers. And the new edition has these errors. And he's surprised that anyone on Mars actually noticed the error, right? Because you know, who's going to notice an error in, a, in an ancient book, you know, unless they're a specialist? Um, but it would cause a big problem for his company, right? The book has already been published and printing, printed on very expensive wub fur. This is the most valuable material for book printing. So, you know, it's it's not oh, it's not new, it's not like a science fiction device to have the, to have texts printed on animal skins, right? Fur, I don't I don't know. It's I don't know if it's if it's woven wood fur, but of course, you know, vellum and parchment are all you know made from animal products. So that's before paper, you know, animal products were used. That was one of the reasons books were so expensive. That and they had to be copied by hand, but the materials that books were made of was very expensive. And that's the case here. It's it's made out of this wood fur. It's the most valuable material for book printing. Now a man from the Watchmen over distortions and forged artifacts generally, that's actually an acronym, WODAFAG. Watchmen over distortions and forged artifacts generally. His name is Brandeis. He challenges masters over the errors. He argues that on the colonies, it's more important than ever to have accurate versions of cultural texts from Earth in order to preserve the cultural heritage of, of humanity. This change is a substantial, and so we actually get what the change is. Instead of, quote, from sense of grief and pain, we shall be free. We shall not feel because we shall not. Though earth and sea and seas and heaven were lost, we should not move. We should only be tossed. That's um, the 
original text. Instead, what the text reads is, quote, from a sense of grief and pain we shall free, which earthbound men can neither quantify, qualify nor see. Once dead, we fathom seas cast up from this. Our stint on earth doth herald an unstopping bliss. Now, you know, we, I urge you to go and actually look at the story because these texts are actually opposing messages. It's not a simple typo. It's not a T instead of an I or something. It's, it's actually the interpretation is different. Masters goes and looks and he confirms that the changes were not in the final galleys. So the change got made sometime after the printing was done. Right, so they actually have the final proofs and the, the error is not there. It came later. And so now there's a bit of a mystery about why did this error come into place. Now, Masters and his copy editor, Jack Sneed, meet with Luther Saperstein, who he's the guy who got the Wubfer for the books. Saperstein reveals that Wubfer really never dies. It, it lives on on particles in the air. So I don't know if that's part of its value. Um, now, there's been this idea in some other Dick's writing of having material objects made from organic material, right? Like certain kind of goos that can replicate, you know, you know, devices and things. I think it's done a lot in, they, they make organs out of this in, friends, in the story, Now Wait for Last Year. Right, here it's like the Wubfer is, 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 is alive. It's still, it's still living. So maybe that's what creates the, the change, right? So it's the Wubfer itself. It's actually the material that the book is written on that's changing the message. Um, but integrating, but it, basically it's trying to perfect the style of the text but changing its message. So it's almost an AI. It's not just changing it randomly. It's changing it almost with some consciousness that is trying to maybe improve the text or, or whatever. Now, the major change is that the revised text argues that death is an illusion. Snide points out that the other changes made by Wubfer and other editions of text. So they perform an experiment. They perform an experiment where you're where a sentence is written on the wub fur, and the sentence was, quote, the wub, unlike every other living creature, is immortal, end quote. And this gets changed into, by the wub fur, into, quote, the wub, like every other living creature, is immortal. So the change is from unlike every other creature to like every other creature. So the wub is saying we're all immortal. Just like the original text, the change text seems to suggest that that death is an illusion, right? So we have immortality there too. So that seems to be the theme that gets changed in these texts. It's a big one though, if you think of how many, how much has been written about death and the afterlife and immortality and the soul, you know, it's, it's gonna transform a lot. Masters agrees that the books will no longer have to, can no longer be printed on Wubfer, but that Wubfer may have applications in other areas of life, such as helmet liners or car upholstery anything that can save human life. And there's a bit of a joke saying, well, it seems to want everyone to live forever, so we'll, we'll, we'll set it to do that job. But other examples of what friend transformed texts are talked about, including Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, um, which is uh, an atheist text, and that's just completely blanked out, right? So you open up Age of Reason on Wubfer and it's gone, right? So again, it seems the Wub is saying to us that death is an illusion, that God exists, that there are real experiences. So this is somehow the, the underground truth. And it actually added articles on the survival of death to this to the Britannica encyclopedia. So these are other changes going on. So basically all writing has to be moved from Wubfer to something else or this material is going to be lost. 
changed. But it's all being changed on this theme of survival of death. Masters experiments by wrapping a dish in wubfur, and he finds that once it's wrapped in it, it can't be broken. So he changes his will, requiring his coffin to be lined with wubfur, thinking that maybe this will let him live forever. So um, that's the story. It's, it's kind of cool. It's, it's a really interesting idea. And I, I like that it's taken seriously how texts change over time and how they change to kind of maybe, you know, conform to certain values and ideas you know that's you know I'd have to really study like the translations of the Bible right you know if different Protestant sects for instance or if you compare Protestant Catholic Bibles and the translations that come you know that, that are used you know are there thematic differences based on the, the traditions you know, that might be something fun to look at certainly you know our overall understanding of the past changes as our values change all the humanities professions are essentially quite liquid that way and that we're always looking at the past or our own traditions through the eyes of our contemporary issues and, and problems and, and fascinations. So this story, I guess you could call it a loose sequel to Beyond Lies the Wub. I mean, we have a wub again. Uh, the wub is immortal in that story and its immortality comes when it was eaten it it kind of carries its consciousness into other people so the wub being an immortal creature is something dick has done before and that's one of his earliest stories both beyond lies the wub and not by its cover deal with the survival of death and immortality the plot of the story is very simple here we just have a publisher disturbed by changes in the books they publish and that have been bound with this wub fur which is a very expensive material the changes always lead towards an interpretation that death is not the end while this makes for it useless for the preservation of texts, right? You know, and it's kind of a contradiction too. It's like the immortality of the text is not guaranteed by the Wubfer. It's, it's, he's saying that we're immortal, but by doing so, he's disrupting the immortality of the written word. Indeed, instead of offering protection from the texts, they impose on them. Well, it's, I guess the Wubfer is supposed to provide protection for the text, right? But instead, they're giving them this kind of subjective opinion. So maybe it's, it's the Wubfer's just a consciousness that doesn't want to accept that death is the end, and so it is changing things. Or there's something more mystical going on. I don't know. The Wubfer is a bit uncreative, though. It can only do this. It's got this one trick, right, it, to, to phase out this idea that death is the end. It, it's only challenging fatalism about death. It's not providing any other kind of utopias, right? And, you know, changing, disregarding all of Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, I think it works as kind of a joke for Philip Dick, but it, again, it suggests it's a rather superficial and, and narrow-minded entity, right? I think Age of Reason is a great book, actually. I've, I, on this podcast, I did a series on, on Thomas Paine. So I've, I got kind of two minds on the story. I really don't like the religious aspect of Dick and when he gets kind of nutty with the religious stuff I, I don't like it especially when it's it's kind of heavy-handed here and um, but I really do like the the idea about permanency and text and the difficulty of that and and you know the fact that when you get enough, enough time these texts just change right we're in a kind of a constant telephone game with the past and even we've gotten better I guess at preserving and restoring texts and getting that original meaning but we're always kind of reading the past through glasses that are clouded by our own um, worldview we can never really we can never read the, the epic of Gilgamesh with the mind of someone who is a you know th th third millennium BCE Sumerian 
Okay, so the attitude of the cultural leaders of Mars here is rather interesting. They're so devoted to the preservation of human culture that they create an organization devoted to textual purity. They scour all publications on Mars for this purity. They believe that since they are on the frontier, the authenticity of human culture is at risk. Right. So the frontier then, again, is not being presented here as an agent of rebirth or renewal. Instead, the frontier becomes something about sustaining and keeping the old intact. In the sense, it's, it's very much the new frontier for, for Philip Dick. Compare this to, for instance, um, Souvenir, where people go to the frontier and they kind of reinvent cultures in new ways and they, they, they remix cultures and you know, play around with it that way. Here, it's, it's all about preservation. No corruption from the original can be allowed. Um, now, to what degree is this how the frontier works, right? English men crossed the Atlantic, settled in the New World. They brought with them Christianity, English language, and literary traditions. But wasn't it changed when it came to America? Wasn't it transformed? Christianity became a little bit different, right? English culture mutated. The English language changed. So this idea of actually preserving a culture across the frontier is, is kind of fantastical. And so the WUB maybe is doing just what always happens with frontiers and as cultures change, right? If you reread uh, Robert A. Heinlein's book, Mars is, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, you have this wonderful plane with like how the family changes when the people live on the moon and all that stuff. Now, the Martian patriarchs here are working hard to stop these changes from happening in Mars, yet the application of a local commodity, the wub fur, makes that corruption in inevitable. The transformative nature of the frontier remains alive despite the best efforts at the cultural purists. So there's a bit of a conflict there, whether we keep the culture intact or we, or we change it. Now, what's the proper response to our world that is so liquid that even texts can no longer hold their form? Um, we like to think that although much in the world, uh, in, our, in our world, shifts under our feet, we like to think that maybe our cultural legacy remains intact. And certainly this is the conceit of the conservatives, right? Like the world's changing, but we have like our traditions to stand on. And therefore we can't disrupt the traditions. But those traditions are always changing too and how we understand them changes, right? Certainly that's the case with like the idea of traditional marriage, right? We, we can't have gay marriage because we need to preserve traditional marriage. What traditional marriage was exploitative, it was based on property ownership. It was all about land and paternity certainty. It, you know, go read the Code of Hammurabi. It's, it's not a feminist text by any stretch of the imagination. You know, and it wasn't even necessarily about monogamy. There were, you know, men could always, you know, monogamy was enforced for women, not for men, right? And if a man was punished for non-monogamy, it was because his crime against another man for sleeping with his wife or daughter, not, you know, because him having more than one partner was a bad thing on his own. Anyways, I mean, I'm just saying this, the, the, the conservative idea that there is kind of a cultural legacy that's intact, I, I think is a bit dubious, you know. Even if the texts remain pure, which I suppose mostly they are, how they're interpreted and understood change. Now, even if we're not at risk of losing the sanctity of tests, right, but who knows with the digitization of everything, you know, is it maybe possible we lose books again? I, I don't know. It's something that con I'm concerned about. I, I know libraries have done a lot of good job digitizing books. And that probably makes the loss of books less likely, you know, just because they get, you know, a text, even if it's lost in some supercomputer somewhere at, at the Harvard Library, you know, it's probably on a dozen or so computers across the world, right, of private computers. So maybe texts will be more likely to be preserved. But putting all our eggs kind of in the digitization basket does pose risks, especially if there's a 
catastrophic events. So, um, But that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the reinterpretation of texts and how their meanings may become opaque over time or how we start to read them with a mental superstructure that doesn't match where the text was written. And so we kind of put our own presumptions onto it. We are a bit like the web for always rewriting our cultural texts for each new epoch. So anyways, that's my feelings about uh, not by its cover. It's a, it's a really good story. It's a really nice idea. And I think there's a lot to talk about. So if you have your own ideas about this story, please leave them below and I will get back to you. Or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So um, thanks as always for listening. Um, what else do we have for 1968? Well, technically, the story to end all stories for Harlan Ellison's anthology Dangerous Visions was published in 1968, um, but I'm not going to... I, well, I already talked about it with The Faith of Our Fathers, so um, that was a bit of a cheat there, but I didn't want to do a whole episode on a story that's essentially a one paragraph. So if, if you're following along and you're wondering where my comments on that really, really short story, one paragraph, is, it's, it's, in, it's added on to my thoughts on Faith of Our Fathers. So that leads us to, we'll jump ahead to 1969. We've got some novels to look at first, um, at least one. I'll have to look at my list to, to know. I, I don't have it with me right now. But we got uh, at least one novel from 1969. Um, is it Ubik? It might be Ubik. So that'll be fun. And then we have just one story uh, published in 1969. That's The Electric Ant. And then that'll bring us to the end of the 19, 1960s. So, um, as always, thank you so much for listening. Um, I will see you next time with, with Ubik, with my thoughts about Ubik. And contentment forever If you're